It's lunchtime at Tim Hortons, and we're serving up a special deal just for you. Our new $5.99 lunch deal includes your choice of any lunch sandwich and a side of crunchy kettle chips. Because what's lunch without a little crunch? And the sandwich choice is all yours. Like a ham and Swiss, Chipotle chicken wrap, BLT, and more. Made to order just the way you like it. Tim Hortons' new lunch deal. Simple, delicious, and just $5.99. Now that's a good deal. Only at your neighborhood Tim's. U.S. only. Price and participation vary. Terms apply. Hello and welcome to Japan Explained. When I see or hear anything about geishas in Japan, it usually falls into two categories. Sweet fairy tale about the treasuries of traditional culture, or not so sweet tale about high-class prostitutes. So, who are geishas? Short answer, a sweet fairy tale. At least now, because, you know, history doesn't like simple answers. So, in the first episode of Japan Explained, I will address the biggest misconception about Japanese culture – geishas. How did this profession start? What geisha actually do? And where all these myths about them came from? The history of geisha starts in the second half of the 16th century. And they were men. Well, he was. Male predecessors of geisha were known as taikomochi, and the first taikomochi was Sorori Shinzaemon. His story is still half a legend, but at least historians agreed on his existence. Sorori Shinzaemon was born in a merchant city of Sakai, near Osaka, and then somehow made his way to the ears of de facto ruler of Japan, Taiko Toyotomi Hideyoshi. Probably coming from a well-established family of scabbard makers, he was educated in poetry, drawing, calligraphy and tea ceremony, but history will always remember him as a witty jester. There are lots of funny stories about Sorori. For example, when once Hideyoshi asked him if he looks like a monkey, Sorori answered, of course not, it's just monkeys try to resemble your highness. Another time, when Hideyoshi wanted to reward him, he asked for just a single grain of rice. And double tomorrow. And double the next day. And so on for months. Let's count. One, two, four, eight, sixteen, thirty-two, sixty-four, one hundred twenty-eight, two hundred fifty-six, five hundred twelve on day ten, and five hundred nineteen thousand one hundred sixty-eight on day twenty. You've got the numbers. But we are here today not to discuss the biography of Sorori. So, let's concentrate on one particular story important for us today. Let's call it the Ear Whisperer. When Taiko asked Sorori if he had any favor to ask, Sorori asked if he could daily smell Hideyoshi's ears. Weird thing, but... Okay, why not? 
Now, every day, Sorori would pick a moment when Hideyoshi meets his retainers, sit next to him and pretend he is whispering something into Taiko's ear. Visitors were so scared of what he might whisper that they tried their best to make Sorori happy with loads of gifts and money. And since he had Hideyoshi's ear, they called him Taiko Mochi, the one who has Taiko. Time flies. Hideyoshi died and so did Sorori. But he was not the only witty guy out there. As titled Taiko sounds in Japanese exactly the same as the drum, which is also Taiko, loads of drum-beating Taiko mochi jesters entered the streets of Osaka, Kyoto, Edo and other big cities. At the beginning of the 17th century they made their way into pleasure quarters, where high-class courtesans used them to entertain their guests. And here I have to stop for a second. We are entering the 17th century, which means Edo period. Times when everything that could be regulated was regulated. Prostitution was legal, but only if properly licensed and controlled. Because taxis. Areas at the outskirts of the cities were converted into enclosed, quite literally with walls and no allowance to exit, pleasure quarters. The most famous of them all were Yoshiwara in Edo and Shimabara in Kyoto. In this highly regulated society, the lure of Shimabara and Yoshiwara was the romance, elegance and excitement of that one place where money, charm and wit made more of an impression than rigidly defined social class. Taikomochi became an essential part of pleasure quarters. They were playing all kinds of musical instruments, dancing, reciting funny stories, and generally keeping a good company to the guests. Usually they were also trained in tea ceremony, calligraphy, and other traditional arts, and at some point got recognized for their talent. Another name to call Taiko Mochi was Geisha, a person of arts. I guess the customers of one brothel in Shimabara were surprised when a female Taiko Mochi entered their party one day in 1751. She called herself Geiko. Not a person, but a lady of arts. A few years later, similar female entertainers appeared in Edo. They were called Onna Geisha, female Geisha. The new female Geisha took the quarters by storm. They sang popular tunes, freely came in and out of the quarters, and unlike the caged courtesans, were in every sense worldly. In 1779, female geisha were recognized as practicing a distinct profession, and a registry office was set up to provide and enforce rules of conduct for them. Geisha were not to wear flamboyant kimono or combs and jeweled pins in their hair. They were not to sit next to guests or otherwise insinuate themselves into the place of the courtesan. A geisha found guilty of stealing a customer could be suspended for some time, or even for good. Just a year later, in 1780, female geisha outnumbered the male ones, and people began to say otoko geisha when they meant the later. More than 150 years of male dominance in the profession were over. 
but the story would be too easy if that would be it. In the second half of the 18th century, the term geisha, artist, was an element in numerous terms. There were shiro or white geisha who were purely entertainers, korobi geisha who tumbled for guests, kido geisha stood at the entrance to carnivals, playing their shamisen to attract businesses. In the province, dancing girls, odoriko, began to be called machi geisha or town geisha, as opposed to the geisha who appeared within the licensed quarters of the bigger cities. Among them were those who would grunt the pillow and those who would not. With such a variety of geishas, the question of geisha versus prostitutes has always been complicated. Shogunal government certainly found it so, and a ton of effort was spent on trying to preserve a distinction between the two groups of women. That's how geisha became what they are now, I'd like to say, but sorry, no, because there is another story. So let's go a bit back in time. In the middle of the 16th century, two tea houses opened their doors near the entrance to Yasaka Shrine in Kyoto. And they were serving, well, tea and small snacks. Yasaka, then called Gion, was one of the major pilgrimage spots of Kyoto, so business went quite well. As more and more tea houses were opening around the shrine, one of them, called Kashiwaya, decided to try something new. A healthy vegan snack, fried tofu covered in miso paste on a bamboo skewer. And it became immensely popular. In fact, so popular that people would come from all around the country to try it, a captain of Dutch ship once came all the way from the Jima, and Kitagawa Utamaro's drawing of Kashiwaya hangs now in Boston Museum of Arts. I guess it was yummy, at least the version the restaurant serves nowadays is not half bad, but the main reason was they put a great show. Girls working in the shop were cutting tofu following a rhyme. Soon music and dancing elements were added, and Kashiwe became famous all around Japan. Other tea shops followed. Now here and there cute waitresses were hired not only to serve customers tea and sweets, but also to dance and sing for them. And this is the beginning of Gion Geisha, they say. Fast forward to the mid-19th century. In 1853, black ships of Matthew Colbright Perry reached Japan. Long story short, it causes a revolution. Foreigners entered Japan for the first time in more than 200 years. One of them, Thousand Harris, arrived in Shimoda in 1856 to establish the first US consulate in Japan. And here he met a geisha called Okichi. Or did he? There are many ways of telling this story. Okichi a spy, Okichi a mistress, Okichi a servant, and Okichi a love of his life. The most believable of them all is Okichi the miscommunication. Following the notes about his frustration with Japanese officials, Harris writes in his diary that he got sick. His secretary, Henry Husken, requested a nurse, but was misunderstood and got Okichi instead. She was a young local girl, maybe a geisha, but most likely not. 
and she did serve Harris for some time, though it might have been as short as just three days. Then she was paid and fired. End of story. Not so exciting, right? But it was a great base for a truly dramatic romance. A young geisha Okichi forced to leave her fiancé to serve the barbarian and be a spy for the Japanese government. But then they fall in love and even after he leaves Japan, he remembers about her. She's ostracized, starts to drink and then drowns herself. Lots of drama. Stories about suffering heroine had great success at the time, and this one was no exception. Later, it even inspired the 1958 Hollywood movie They Were Burying and the Geisha. And I understand why in the story Okichi became a geisha. Mid-19th century was a golden age of geisha culture. Right at the time when Harris tried to establish relationships with shogun government, tea houses of Kyoto became secret bases where all kinds of political dissidents gathered to discuss their plots. And many geishas risked their lives to protect the secrets of their clients. So, when the year 1868 opened the new Meiji era, Tokyo, now the capital of Japan, saw a wave of former geisha becoming wives of the political elite. Geishas spike in popularity. Now they are the most fashionable and sought-after ladies in the country. Spring 1872 marks the beginning of yearly dancing performances in Kyoto. Everything seems to be perfect. But not for long. The same year, new government issued the proclamation for the emancipation of geisha and prostitutes. They were freed of their debts and told to look for proper employment. But why all of a sudden? The fact that Japan had a system of legalized prostitution didn't let Victorian gentlemen sleep at night. Foreign nations were having doubts about how really civilized a nation with such practices could be. And Meiji Japan desperately wanted to be perceived as modern, developed and civilized, even if it meant they had to abolish all the fun. But geishas didn't give up. In 1874, they were allowed to continue their work if they wished so, but now they had to attend classes and workshops to learn sewing, weaving, knitting and other useful skills. The government hoped it will make geishas quit their job, but the result was quite the opposite. Boring manual labor made them appreciate their artistic way of life even more. By the end of the 19th century, almost 30 years into the new way of life, people started to become nostalgic about good old days. Geisha were seen as women of true Japanese spirit, and their popularity grew, reaching 25,000 by the beginning of 90,000s. The 20th century was not the best one for geishas, though. It had lots of ups and downs and even more uncertainties. It started with nostalgia about good old samurai days, but as the 1920s got closer, more and more people were just not born during these good old times. The new generation wanted new entertainment, and they grew up learning that Western was good and Japanese was outdated and tasteless. Geishas tried to fit in, 
They learned Western music and dances, experimented with clothes and hairstyles, but all for nothing. They were still seen as a dying tradition. At the same time, the new class of female entertainers appeared. Joku, or coffee girls, the predecessors of modern hostesses. They weren't particularly good at any art, but had one trick in their sleeve. They were young and very modern. They had curled short hair, wore dresses and listened to western music. By the mid-1930s there were at least twice as much coffee girls in Japan that it was geishas. It was time for geishas to lose. But instead, it made them realize that in trying to be modern, they were in danger of losing what made them special in the first place. Geisha withdrew from the position of fashion innovators and became curators of tradition, and finally became the geishas they are now. It was also a perfect time for such a decision. In late 1930s, wind changes its direction. English is now the language of the enemies, and all Western must be abolished. Japanese uniqueness was brought up as a symbol of superior nation. Geishas were the obvious example of Japan's unique civilization. Nobody dared to call them out-fashioned and boring anymore. And as Japan was expanding its territories, there was no shortage of rich men who admired and supported traditional art of geisha. But while some grew richer, the others become poorer. And if you remember the story of Sayuri from Memoirs of Geisha, that's exactly the time it starts. Some families did sell their daughters to the Wakia, hoping to give them the education and good life in the future. As Japan was going deeper into the war, money flow started to dry out. It was also the time when Mizuage, a custom coming from courtesans, was performed in a geisha world. Not in every district, and there was no bidding. But it brought good money and some Wakia trying to earn as much as possible even sold girls a few times. Everybody tried to survive the way they could. And even though geisha houses continued to operate until 1944, when they were forced to close. Geishas were sent to work in the factories. The old geishas still remember how they had to make work clothes from their beautiful kimono. It was sad to ruin them, but that's the only clothes they had. And they were also a bit proud to be the most beautiful and fashionable ones, even in the factory. But there was one geisha who didn't go to work. Her name was Oyuki. In 1902, American industrialist George Dennison Morgan, nephew of Pierre Point Morgan of the Morgan Banking dynasty, came to Japan to collect antiques. But instead, he met Oyuki, a geisha from Gyon district of Kyoto. He courted Oyuki for two years and paid about $20,000 to pay off her debt to the Okia house. They married and moved to America together. But even though Oyuki was coming from a good family herself, the Morgans were not pleased. The couple tried to live separately in New York, but even Oyuki's entertainer talents didn't change the fact that she was Asian. She was not accepted into society, and they left America for France. Everything seemed to be good here, but in 1915 George died from a heart attack. 
Until 1931, she lived with another man who she never married, but he also had a heart attack. She didn't have American citizenship, nor did she have the French one, so she had to go back to Japan. In 1938, she came back to Kyoto to take care of her family. Not the best time to return, as Japan was head over heels in love with Nazi Germany and on the age of war with the whole world. Police was not happy to have Oyuki back. She was obviously a spy and was often checked on and always followed by a policeman whenever she left Kyoto. She was not even allowed to work at the factory when all geisha houses were closed. But she overcame it and lived through her 80s. In August 1945, the war was finally over for Japan and General MacArthur allowed to reopen geisha quarters. Now, instead of Japanese military elite, geishas were serving American officers. I hope they enjoyed the cultural experience. But there were soldiers who wanted cheaper and simpler entertainment. Everybody knows that Japan is all about Fuji, geisha and sake, so, geisha girls appeared. They called themselves geishas because the name was familiar, but in fact they were just hungry girls from all around the country. Opening so-called geisha houses established around military bases to prevent rape was not helping with ruining the good name of real geisha either. When the American occupation ended, the image of the geisha still didn't fully recover in the West. But in Japan, things were getting slightly better. Until in 1989, one geisha didn't ruin it all. She was a former mistress of Uno Sosuke, who just became a prime minister of Japan. Long story short, she claimed he was both irresponsible and stingy to support her during their four months affair. Public pressure made him resign from the post, Geisha society completely rejected her. Rule number one. Complete secrecy was broken. And I just wonder how many patrons Willow and Flower World lost because of this incident. And then 90s happened. After the economical crisis, there were less than 100 geishas left in Tokyo, and not much more in Kyoto. And remember the coffee girls of 1920s? Well, they came back. Hostess clubs started to grow like mushrooms after the rain. A small revival happened when Pan Geisha Hanachan entered the stage. She was very eccentric and outrageous, but cute and immensely popular. She had a moment of glory and then moved abroad, and continues to create, though there is not that much info about her anymore. But soon, the bestseller Memoirs of a Geisha was published and constant flow of tourists, bewitched by the mysterious and refined willow world, headed to Kyoto. And here we are now, in the world where geishas are living tradition. They dress in kimono, wear hairstyles you see in samurai movies, speak an old-fashioned dialect. Their dances and music didn't change for more than a century. There are some changes, though. You can sip a cocktail in Geisha Bar now, and in 2008 the first Okia boarding house got a website. Tokyo even has a few foreign Geishas now, and one male. 
But except that, dinner with Geisha is an easy and affordable way to time travel. Thank you for staying with me till the end. If you like this episode, please don't forget to subscribe to the show, not to miss any future episodes. And check out japanexplained.com for more info about geishas. Talk to you soon. Bye. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's stamps.com. Code program. It's lunchtime at Tim Hortons, and we're serving up a special deal just for you. Our new $5.99 lunch deal includes your choice of any lunch sandwich and a side of crunchy kettle chips. Because what's lunch without a little crunch? And the sandwich choice is all yours. Like a ham and Swiss, Chipotle chicken wrap, BLT, and more. Made to order just the way you like it. Tim Hortons' new lunch deal. Simple, delicious, and just $5.99. Now that's a good deal. Only at your neighborhood Tim's. U.S. only. Price and participation vary. Terms apply.